0: Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations.
1: This podcast is proudly sponsored by the packaging division of Micromatic, the leader in keg spear quality and innovation. Let our Veteran Technical Support Staff provide you with the training and information you need to safely service your kegs. For more information, visit Micromatic.com. That that dance of working with growers and trying to get the quality year to year to be where we need it to be has been, you know, a really delicate dance, I would say.
0: Today on the show, we drop in on craft malting pioneers, Andrea and Christian Stanley. You'll hear about what it takes for small scale growers, malsters, and brewers to work together at the local level. So, Valley Malt was one of the first craft malsters in the U.S. I believe you guys got started in 2010. How about giving us a little bit of company history? Why and how did all this come about?
1: Chris is pointing to me. I guess. I'll start with uh, just our basic love of craft beer and appreciating all of the craft brewers that lived um, and operated in our neck of the woods. Um, And also a love for agriculture and trying to uh, bring food systems to a more local level and supporting local farmers, which then creates more land in use for farming versus development. And so kind of seeing those two industries, or, you know, two um, values, I guess, we, we kind of had this idea of using local ingredients to maybe start a small brewery. And when we started looking into what it would take to actually make that happen, we realized that malting was a key process that we really didn't know anything about But we soon found out by talking to a few brewers that there really weren't any malt houses uh, anywhere on the northeast um, or anywhere on the east coast, really, that the closest ones were in Wisconsin and um, that they operated at a really large scale. So two real big revelations to us were that there really were only a handful of large malt houses operating in the U.S. and that they were operating um, really far away from where these craft breweries were. So we thought, you know, rather than start a brewery, what about trying to start a small malt house? And so that's really the, the beginning of the story. And then really like anybody that becomes an entrepreneur, you start putting together numbers, you start talking to people about supply of raw materials, um, marketing that product to brewers. So talking to brewers, And, um, nine months into all of that planning, we, Chris had designed a a malt system and had it built, um, and we were up and running doing one ton batches and that was in 2010. And now we're here seven years later and we're malting, um, about eight tons of malt per week.
0: Talk about that transition a little bit, starting out at one ton and, you know, how did you grow from, from, from one to where you are now and uh, maybe hit some of the highlights along the way there?
2: I mean, from the uh, equipment side, we uh, started with one ton with the system that we originally built, which basically we built on uh, some retirement savings and credit cards to start the business. And then we um, went to our next phase. We actually were, oh, and we got some money from like a local small business association too, to kind of start the business. And then further down the line, we ended up buying some used malting equipment actually from Maltery Frontenac, which is up in Quebec, Canada, um, the province of Quebec. They were looking to expand. And so we purchased essentially four one-ton bins from them and had another round of financing to get those bins. And that's when we went from our transition from doing one ton of malt a week to having four tons a week, I guess. Um, And then we've, we kind of ramped that system up. So with the one ton system, we are maxed out at the end. And when we started with the four ton system, I think for the first, at least six months, we probably were only doing two or three tons a week. But within the first year, I would say we were up to doing four tons a week. And then subsequently, we were just maxed out at four tons. We even put in a little area. We expanded our building, put in an area where we are floor malting, as well as doing the pneumatic malting in the bins. So we were able to up our production a little bit that way. And then about two years ago, we started another expansion, which we just finished in January. And that was to put in a separate kiln and a separate steep tank, but still use the four one ton bins for germination. And that way we're kind of able to bootstrap up the business. And, you know, pretty much all along the way, we've been financing the whole project ourselves. So, you know, we haven't really gotten in any capital from outside or anything to expand that amount of equipment. And that's kind of. My perspective from the equipment side, I don't know if Andrea has more on the business and farming side, because that's a whole nother aspect.
1: Definitely the raw material side of trying to source our grain, going from malting one ton a week to the four and then to the eight ton. um, It really was, you know, going from working with small vegetable farmers here in Massachusetts who were rotating and growing a couple acres here, a couple acres there of grain to really having to start to reach out and talk to actual grain growers in New York um, and Maine who were capable of growing 25, 50, 100 acres for us so that we could have a single, you know, source of good quality grain. And so then that, you know, was starting with conversations about contracting. um, And then there's the whole infrastructure of having, you know, making sure that there was places to store that grain throughout the year both on he, you know on site here at Valley Malt having to put up silos but also making sure that our um the farmers we were working with also had that kind of storage and infrastructure um and then on the sort of sales side or the marketing side you know th- the years that we've been in operation craft beer has really all of our customers have really been growing quite a bit so it was that growth was really about just fulfilling continuing to t- fulfill some of the relationships we already had with breweries and distilleries who were growing. So it didn't really, didn't really require a lot of extra, you know, um, getting out there and finding um, new markets or new brewers to work with.
0: Very good. Let's get into the, the sourcing a little bit more. We all, we all know that it's possible to make good or bad malt from good barley, but it's impossible to make good malt from bad barley. Why don't you talk a little bit about your malt intake process? What do, what do you look for? What should other craft malters be looking for? and maybe comment on any relevant lessons learned over the last seven years?
1: Yeah, it's always a real it's a dance because you really want to nurture relationships with growers and you want to eventually find the growers that year to year are going to have the quality that we need. Um, and sometimes that means having to Say no to grow, you know a grower that might have uh, an issue with the barley. Um, just to back up, you know, basic parameters, parameters that we're looking for are germination. First and foremost, the grain that we get has to uh, have at least 97 percent germination rate. And we look at another number called the RVA or a falling number, which is a sign of any pre-sprout that might've happened with that barley to make sure that the germination that we see today is the germination that we will get 10 months, 12 months, 18 months from now. Um, and certainly the moisture content of that grain is also going to be really important, making sure that it's under 13% or, you know, Right now, we're looking for closer to 12.5% or 12% moisture, um, and that's going to help it, you know, stay stable for a lot longer. Um, And then we look for, um, you know, other things like the protein content and—am I missing anything? (laughs) Well, the the size of the grain, the uniformity of the size, you know, making sure it's plump. Um, But really, that germination is first and foremost. We We need to see that and make sure that that's good. Yeah, and don too, and and D O N yeah. vomitoxin, making sure that that's low under one part per million. Um, but yeah, I mean the the that that dance of working with growers and trying to get the quality year to year to be where we need it to be has been, you know, a really delicate dance, I would say. And sometimes we, I have accepted grain that was pre-sprouted and tried to work with it you know we tried to work with it as best as we could because we wanted to really nurture those relationships um and you know sometimes yeah we we did make crappy malt from crappy barley that is for sure
2: and i would say another thing too we do is when we look for farmers we're looking for people that we know have experience i don't know how many people come to us and say oh i've got a hay field and uh i'm trying to like change my tax bracket and grains in those fields you know is that something you'd be interested in it's pretty much like no no No. that's not (laughs) because you know we're looking for growers that either have experience growing grain or are willing to financially commit to getting the equipment for those grains. So just basic stuff. When we start talking to a farmer, we'll ask them, you know, do you have a seed drill? Do you have a combine? Do you have um, a grain dryer? Do you have somewhere to put the grain once it's harvested? Um, All these different questions that just kind of vet people to make sure they're serious. And that will make a big improvement toward um getting quality grains because you know they're committed you know they'll harvest the grain when it's ready to harvest won't leave it out in the field and that they don't have like i mean we've worked with farmers that will plant some grain but then have so much other stuff going on especially working with vegetable farmers at the time of year when it comes to harvest they just they can't like fit that harvest into their schedule. So.
0: I know you do a lot of malt analysis in house, but do you also outsource some of it?
1: Yeah, we also send our batches out to Hartwick College for full analysis. And um, just part of the conversation to back up we were just having about the grain sourcing and that quality, Um, something that's been really helpful to us since that Hartwick lab has opened up and Aaron McLeod has been doing grain analysis is that he's able to really talk with growers. From a place of authority as a third party um, to let them know about the quality of their grain and where there might be issues. So it's not always us as the buyer that's having to tell a grower what might be wrong with their grain. Um, And so that's been really helpful for us in the last few years just to have that, you know, Aaron as an authority out there um, helping to. You know, helping people, giving them input, and helping them to improve their quality. And likewise with the malt analysis that he's able to do there in his lab. You know, we—I mean, last year, well, I guess it was almost two years ago now. Um, we were having problems with Wint malt, as you know, we were talking about Wint malt before, and we were just seeing low alpha. It was a low protein Wint malt to begin with, but it was also really low alpha. And trying to figure out how we were going to somehow correct that in our process um, through, you know, germination time and, and kilning. So I don't know why I got off on that side tangent. No, that's but.
0: okay. I was kind of going there anyway. Um, I am curious if you could comment on, you know, what has been the most difficult barley you've had to process at, at Valley Mall. It sounds like you've had lots of different challenges, but what, what are some of the biggest curveballs you've had?
2: I mean, usually it comes to, uh, you know, you, usually it is either pre-harvest sprouting or some kind of germination issue, so ultimately a germination issue. And you know you get something where maybe initially the germination is really good, but then it was either at improper moisture or at had, had pre-harvest sprout, and so then the germination starts to fall off. And that's really when problems start to happen, because you know we're buying truckloads of grain, storing them on site here in silos. And if the germination starts to drop in those silos, we have a problem on our hands because that's a a big investment we've made to then have no real product we can produce with it. So I would say that's that's really the biggest risk and the hardest part, kind kind of broadly speaking.
1: Yeah, just this past year, we had about 50 ton of a barley that the RVA was fine. It was above 120. The moisture was slightly high and about 11 months after harvest we went to start malting it and the germination was under 80 percent and mm. really nothing. you know at that point there was nothing we could do so um those things do happen yeah <laughs> <laughs> and you know we're at you know, ask the lab like Aaron, what could have gone mm-hmm. wrong? You know, and he's like, I, you know, I guess the higher moisture, and we're talking like thirteen and a half percent, you know, moisture, not anything crazy.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but uh, it is, you know, barley is a living, it's a living seed, and yeah. there's a lot about it that is still, I think, probably a little bit unknown, at least to us.
0: Could you comment on the difficulties of bringing a new crop year into your malt house? just how much of a challenge is that
1: Yeah, I mean, we're we're just dealing, you know, starting with a same farm, same variety, different year and we we thought we would be able to have our same steep schedule for this particular variety and same germ schedule cuz the protein content was similar, it was within like I don't know, it was 8.9 in 2016 and 9.1 this year or something. So low protein on um, endeavor, which is a two-row winter barley, a North American, you know, mostly more North American genetics, um, and we're seeing that our first few batches, um, you know, had higher beta glucans. Um, you know, we try to look to have our beta glucans under, you know, under a hundred. So, um, so we're just trying to figure that out now with steeping out to a little bit of a higher moisture and germinating a little bit longer yeah and looking back in seven years we've never really had any concerns with our wheat our our wheat supply it's always met quality specs rye same thing spelt it's the barley it's the malting barley that has been the most difficult grain to continually source you know good quality
0: Coming up, a shift to winter varieties and why Andrea is not allowed anywhere near the roaster. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas.
1: This podcast is proudly sponsored by the packaging division of Micromatic in 2015 micromatic introduced the concept of a 10-year 10-color coating of co2 valves as a tool for brewers to proactively separate kegs which are due for spear service or replacement industry veterans john graber and steve Brott are available for workshops and presentations to ensure safe and effective maintenance of your micromatic spears for more information visit micromatic.com
0: Here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. Don't miss the 2017 Master Brewers Conference October 12th through the 14th in Atlanta. Come early for the HACCP course if you need to build a food safety program at your brewery. District Michigan and St. Louis both meet on October 19th. The District Northwest fall meeting is October 20th and 21st in Eugene. District Mid-South's fall meeting is October 21st at Mill Creek Brewing. The 2017 Master Brewers Brewing and Malting Science course begins October 29th in Madison. Several districts meet on the weekend of November 3rd and 4th. District Mid-Atlantic is at Green Flash and Virginia Beach. District New England meets at Allagash. And District Midwest meets at BrewDog and Winchester, Ohio. District New York meets on November 11th at Triumph in Princeton, New Jersey. District Milwaukee gathers in Brookfield November 15th. District St. Louis is at Kirkwood Station on the 16th and District Southeast is at Isla Murata Brewery in Fort Pierce, where they're holding a special one-day engineering course November 17th, followed by their fall meeting on the 18th. Check the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Now back to the show. When I visited you guys back in May, you talked about some of these sort of big picture differences that you've observed for uh, winter barley versus spring barley over the last four plus years. Uh, Why don't you talk a little bit more about that and how that's driving the varieties you prefer to work with?
1: Well, we've had just, I mean, just to go back this past year, um, 2017 growing season, for anybody that was um, in our area, Which, when I say our area, we source most of our grain about 200 miles from here, and that includes areas of New York. And it was a very wet spring. It was also a cold spring, so it was really hard to get um, spring barley planted before May. Um, And then we Ended out how, and and if you go back the year prior to that in 2016, we had a really severe drought in the Northeast. And so anybody that planted spring barley that year had difficulty even with initial germination and vigor because there wasn't a lot of water. Um, And, um, you know, just the quality wasn't there in terms of protein or. Other factors, the barley was under quite a bit of stress because, I mean, I think we had 45 days without any rain, um, which is not really something that happens here in the Northeast that farmers are expecting. So nobody irrigates or anything like that. So um, whereas winter barley, you know, it seems like a much more casual planting season. You know, we have kind of a window right now, the beginning to middle to end of September where people are able to plant. Um, I would say farmers aren't under as much stress. So they're able to look into, you know, dialing in the seeding rate and fertilization, you know, getting that plant established in the fall. Yeah. So anyway, I think that those factors just on the farm seem to really be helpful. And it just seems like the, you know, if you look at some of the statistics from Cornell, you've got... I think an average of maybe 40 to 50 bushels per acre of spring barley, where you have 80 to a hundred or more for winter barley. So, um, you know, for that, for yield alone, it seems like a more profitable crop um, for growers. Last fall, we were trying to source more winter varieties, um, more winter barley seed, and we had some trouble getting, certain varieties that we wanted, but this year we were able to bring in um quite a bit of seed from Idaho and you know be able to have our growers plant that. Um, so I would say pretty much all the grain that we have contracted for next year is all winter barley. Um, whether or not we end up buying some spring barley more on us on the spot well you know we could but for the most part it's we've pretty much transitioned all winter varieties yeah to we, malt the,
2: i would say the only exception is we do source some grain from maine and in maine they can't grow winter varieties right. so you know a lot of times if we are buying something out of maine which we like to support them uh we will buy spring varieties but with the ESBN and that kind of thing going on right now there are a lot of new spring varieties that can be planted there that are doing well. So just kind of a matter of time to see what happens.
0: Very good. Is the challenge in Maine with winter is that the, they don't have enough winter hardiness or what, what, what is the main reason that they can't really produce much winter?
2: So, yeah. They just, the grains just don't, they'll, 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 frost kill or whatever. Okay. you want winter
0: yeah. kill. So. Okay. All right. Well, let's go back to flavor. Uh, just like craft brewers, it's not enough to just be small and local. Uh, you've also got to have a, a quality product and you have to differentiate from all the other malts out there. I know you guys are big fans of the hot steep method, which we covered on episode 42. Why don't you talk about what that's done for quality at Valley Malt?
1: One thing we, we realized when we first were able to start doing the hot steep method last spring, summer, um, was that our pilsners had kind of a too much of a green sprout flavor and aroma to them. So we were able to look, you know, at our process and start with our curing temperatures and um, achieve a little bit longer and higher curing to correct that what we considered a flaw in our Pilsner. And then we're able to kind of work with brewers one-on-one and just, you know, have a couple of different curing rates for a pale malt and see which one they prefer.
2: The cool thing about flavor too is going back to working with brewers and, you know, quote unquote customizing it for them because, you know, everybody's got a different idea of flavor. And I mean, if we give them uh crystal ten malt, that's in the sensory method, I mean it's gonna have tremendous flavor to it, but that might not be something you wanna put in your Czech Pilsner. So um, you know, it's really that like what we can do some stuff with a sensory method to have a conversation with brewers about what they like and what beers they could see these malts being in and then kind of dialing in that particular variety or kilning regimen or whatnot for how they want to use that malt.
0: You taught, you mentioned crystal malt. I know you guys are doing some roasting there at Valley Malt. Have you always had a roaster and how important is roasting for, for the craft maltster?
1: I We kind of almost always have had a roaster because I got a roaster on eBay early (laughs) back um, in 2010 for like $2,000. It was an old carnival peanut roaster. And um, that was what I roasted with for the first few years until it caught on fire. and that was just like an outdoor roaster you know it wasn't hooked up it was we hooked it up to a propane tank it wasn't hooked up to you know our any in line natural gas or anything um but once once that was uh
0: <laughs> went up in flames
1: to, <laughs> once that was put to rest um we did uh work on you know get it you know saving up money and getting a um a converted coffee roaster. So now we have a 15 kilo roaster and I'm actually not allowed to go with it. I think, <laughs> I think it's, I think it's, it's
2: on. three yards. <laughs>
1: yeah. I'm not allowed to go near it. Um, but, uh, we, we did hire, um, this guy rich has been working for us now for about five years. He actually came from a coffee roasting company down the street and so um, he is really meticulous about his process and keeping notes. And, you know, he's, uh, he's definitely the reason why we're able to offer a nice portfolio of roasted malts that also are consistent in their color and flavor and aroma. So, so that's kind of cool. And he, he works with, you know, brewers too, so that if they want, because I mean, if you look at, you know, chocolate malt, You know, even with, with, within a, you know, all the different malt houses that do roasting, there's quite a range in color. Um, I've seen anywhere from, and this is just for, you know, regular chocolate malt, not a light chocolate or a coffee. I've seen anywhere from 300 all the way up to 450. Um, So, so he's able to kind of dial in for, again, for each brewery, what, what they want their chocolate malt to, um, you know, to be in terms of color and flavor and aroma. So,
2: yeah. And I would say as far as its importance at the malt house, it's something you just have to decide whether that's what you want to take on or not, because it is an added expense. I mean, there's a lot of other infrastructure you need for the roaster. You definitely need a dedicated person that knows what they're doing to do those roasted malts. You can't just, you know, I I would say somebody has to have some degree of training or willing to commit to learning the whole thing and uh yeah and so it is you know it's a it's a whole nother side of the business i would say
1: but um, I, I will say that the brewers that have started to use our yeah. roasted malts we have a few that now our roasted malts are part of you know their um portfolio of beers and you really can tell the freshness because we roast and then we'll ship out maybe within the 24 hours um, so that brewer that's using those roasted malts, um, is using them really fresh and it comes through in the beer. I mean, you can really taste the freshness of the roasted malts in the beer. Very so, nice. That's yeah.
0: great. Barley breeders love you guys. And I know you love them back. When, when you sit down one-on-one, what kind of things do you ask them to do to help craft malsters?
1: <sighs> well, um one of those awesome conversations where I got to sit down with, um, two amazing breeders, Rich Horsley and Mark Sorrels, happened at the barley improvement conference in 2014 or 15. And that was talking about, um, again, you know, Rich Horsley said, you know what you guys need? Cause we were talking about how, you know, we, we don't really know what varieties to grow in, in the Northeast and, um, he said, you guys need to do a, a URN. And I was like, okay, that sounds great. What's that? And, um, basically it's a, okay, now I'm not going to think of the, it's a uniform regional nursery. And so, uh, you know, he explained it's, you know, you've, you have a group of, um, extension, not just barley breeders, but any, any, a uh, university that's doing any type of grain um, extension agronomic um, work and give them seed of a set number of varieties and have them plant it and then, you know, have a central place to collect all that data. And so he pointed me to this Mississippi uh, URN that was already underway. And so we, he, they helped, Mark and um, Rich helped our craft Malsters guild um, create this URN. Uh, we ended up calling it the ESBN, the Eastern Barley- Spring Barley. Eastern Spring Barley Nursery. Um, and so since 2000, this is the fourth year, I think, or two, 2018 will be the fourth year that we have um, done the ESBN. And there's about 23 varieties um, of spring barley, two row barleys, and they get planted in about 20 different locations um, from Michigan all the way to Aroostook Maine, all the way down to um, Pennsylvania and Virginia. And um, the data gets collected. Some malt, um, small malt, malting is done with them. Um, and a malt analysis can be performed off of that, and so we actually have a lot of data now. Um, so you know that's one that's one huge thing that uh, has really not only um, given us a lot of information, but also brought together a lot of people that are working toward kind of the same goal of trying to bring barley back to their region as a viable, marketable product for growers um for farmers to be able to to grow um so yeah that that's one thing we talk about i guess you know talk about um how different varieties are working for us in the malt house um we talk a lot still about two row versus six row that's <laughs> always a fun <laughs> it's it's one of those that's that the two row versus six row is always one of those really interesting. Things because really, we've malted some amazing six rows. And uh, it's got to be really frustrating for some of the breeders that were told for the last several decades to just, you know, focus on six row and then to have that turn around and now be two row.
0: <laughs> yeah, it takes a long time to catch up to that. You're considered pioneers of the craft of, of craft malting. I'm curious if you could comment on sort of what's been critical to your success oh. and survival.
1: Mentally, <laughs>
0: <laughs> all of the above, <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: I think probably not growing extremely fast. I think we've kind of maintained a pretty slow growth compared to you know maybe some of the brewers that we work with or some of the other malt houses. Um, starting off with you know 10 ton systems right out the door, um, or you know growing from one ton to 10 ton. I, I think that slower growth has been good for us just in where we are and as um, owners in terms of our level of comfort with um, risk and that sort of thing.
0: I'll tell you another thing that you mentioned when I was up there that I thought was really interesting is you talked a lot. We've already talked about it some today, but you talked about the relationships in the supply chain that make it work. But you also talked about you know finding the challenge of finding growers that were willing to work on your scale and then in addition to that you also talked about on the other side of the equation the brewers that were you know eager to work with you you know despite the learning curve at the out of the gate
1: having transparency as a value for our business i think has really allowed us to have frank conversations with both our growers and our brewers that we work with just in terms of you know having you know issues with supply or um you know in the early days when we didn't have malt analysis you know that's that's a lot to ask of a brewer that's buying your grain at a premium to say that we don't have anywhere to send it to give you (laughs) analysis you're just gonna have to brew with it and And hopefully like it, you know, Um, but honestly, those conversations were, were more them understanding and, and us more just talking about how nice it would be to be, you know, that this is our hope and um, them just kind of, you know, finding where it worked, you know, for example, a few of the breweries we work with, they buy um, warthog wheat from us and warthog wheat was a variety of wheat that had really great flavor, low protein. And we had a grower that was able year to year to grow and clean and store really, really nice quality wheat that was easy to malt, had great germination. And so a lot of these, you know, a lot of the brewers that were working with us were able to incorporate that wheat into their production um, as a percentage of their overall malt usage. And that really had, you know, that, that became an anchor for our business. Um, we certainly wouldn't be in business today without, without that hog wheat yeah, supply I mean, that, chain. I remember
2: early on that saved us because we just had, you know, and, and a few things along the way have saved us where, you know, we were small and we had bad growing years and we were able to just like make something work between what the farmer had and what a distillery might've needed and make that work. And that was enough to like, get us through in conjunction with some other things. And I think, you know, we definitely have had some lucky luck along the way that's helped in that circumstance. And then uh, just also just having that commitment from our customers where they're willing to put, you know, a certain percentage, it might be two, it might be 5% of local ingredients in their beers. And that, you know, local ingredient is, a lot is coming from us in the form of wheat or rye, or maybe it is barley. And so that's really helped along the way, having those regular orders to fill where we know we can count on certain customers, so that we can plan, okay, we need this from this farm, it's going to go to this customer. I mean, having those relationships have helped us along the way.
0: That was Christian and Andrea Stanley here on the Master Brewers podcast. I hope you enjoyed learning about craft malting. If you'd like to learn more or find a craft malster near you, be sure to visit the Craft Malsters Guild at craftmalting.com. 130 years ago, Master Brewers was built on the concept of brewers helping each other out so we could all make the best possible beer. That's still true to this day, and it's where a lot of the camaraderie in this industry originated. Master Brewers' award-winning Ask the Brewmasters is the best place to go for troubleshooting where you'll find the industry's only discussion forum that's moderated for technical accuracy by a team of experts. See what everyone else is talking about at community.mbaa.com. United we brew. The 2017 Master Brewers Conference is October 12th through the 14th in Atlanta, Georgia. Conference details can be found along with all the other great resources at mbaa.com. Did you enjoy today's episode? Would you like us to keep making more? If so, there's a really simple way you can let us know. Subscribe, rate, and review the Master Brewers podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your
2: podcasts.